Okay, yes, smoking is bad, but this is cool, okay? <laughs> Instead of having everybody in Congress sitting around yelling at each other, you put them down with a good set of food, let them talk, it would, it would solve all of America's problems. Welcome to How I Embraced the Suck, a podcast where you get to hear from veterans what life in the military is really like. I am your host, Walt. And before we start, you should know that I do not censor the show in any way. You have been warned. All right. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, it's been a long time, but it's good connecting with you again. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show and telling folks uh, what it's like to be both in the Navy and the Air Force. Yeah. Well, it's been like I get a lot, especially from civilians. Thank you for your service. And that's a, a loaded statement, which I'm sure any veteran can <laughs> tell you. But my my standard response has been become thank you. It's been a fun ride. And that's Sure. Got a lot of truth to it and it glosses over a lot, but I'm sure you've experienced that with uh, your interviews and your discussion with military members about how that can go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some, go ahead. Some people, that phrase, some, uh, thank you for your service. Some people find it annoying. Some people um, appreciate it. What, what kind of, what do you mean? It's, it's kind of loaded. What do you mean by that? Well, about a year ago, one of my professors came to me and asked me, hey, we're going to have a Veterans Day event where people can write a paper about veterans and you could get an in-school tuition award or some other form of uh, prize if you do well. And sure. the topic was, thank you for your th service. And I kind of unloaded in this paper is like, what does that even mean? Is it a political game where we have people asking for money? Is it a political power piece where a senator needs to look like he's doing something for the country so he supports the veterans? Is it going to translate to good health care from the VA? Is this going to change the number of veteran suicide rates that we're seeing pandemically? before the COVID outbreak, and now that people are even more isolated during and after a, a pandemic, we have veterans who are suffering homelessness and suicide on a daily basis, if not an hourly basis. Uh, hmm. I appreciate the gesture. Thank you for your service. But what does that even mean? And right. I, I, I took time in this uh, paper to just kind of go through like, here's the reasons why I think that this expression is empty. And if you want to really thank a veteran for your service, ask them what they did. Ask yeah, them right. what was the defining moment of your time in the military? What did you learn? What were some of the things you would change if you could? That's what's going to engage a veteran. And thank you for your service, unfortunately, has just become a platitude that glosses over something that the person who's saying it doesn't really know what they mean out of it and what the person receiving it also doesn't know what they mean out of it. Right, right. 
saying something without really communicating. Right. And there's a ton of veterans out there who would love to just tell you, hey, this is something cool I did. Like, this is something I experienced in the military. Some of them can't because of obvious uh, classification levels, but a lot of them can be tamed down for a veteran, for a, a civilian audience and still sure. communicate what made that service member's time memorable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, yeah. Um, jump into it. What what was a kind of a well? What what was your what was your military service like? Because well, as, just, as you just, mentioned, you did both Navy and Air Force. To start out, I uh, I joined right out of high school, out of a very conservative religious environment where I was both homeschooled and um, very sheltered from how the world and specifically the military could be like. So I had to learn very quickly going to boot camp that all these ideas I had about the military weren't necessarily accurate. And uh, I I joined the Navy to become a SEAL. I'm sure that's a very (laughs) uh, repeated story. Lots of people have that story. I didn't even get out of boot camp before I realized this was not a good fit for me because I went from having extremely high grades, being homeschooled, doing a, you're familiar with the ASVAB that everybody has to come in with. And it, it, I think it scores from zero to 99. And if you get over 70, you're doing well for yourself. I got a 99. So wow, okay. I, I got a perfect score on the entrance exam. I went from never having really swimmed competitively in my life to being able to pass the SEAL entrance test within the space of a couple weeks. Oh, wow. Um, I had all these things in my favor, and I thought I was pretty hot. And then I get to boot camp, and everybody from the ground up tells you you're worthless, you're empty. You're... It's part of the process. Everybody knows this. Sure. But it hit me in a different way, and that uh, that culture clash. I don't think I really overcame that. Not in the, uh, definitely not in boot camp. It took me several years, even after getting to my boat, and then after my boat assignment was over, before I really started shaking some of the the deeper difficulties of the social aspect of the military, and. Mm being able to work within the structure of the military. I don't think we talk about that enough, or at least we didn't when I was very junior in the military. Mm-hmm. The, this uh, whole beat down that you give to new military members, it, it lasts with lots of them very long until either they get out after their first assignment or feel like they're trapped in that occupation and just stick it out until something changes. Mm, Sure. And for some of them, it does really work well. Some of them do adapt and are able to shed that old person. They were to become what the military wants out of them. But a lot of people struggle with that. And when you don't fit that image, it, it creates a lot of difficulty Um, I've seen a lot of people 
especially the submarine culture, because I, when I dropped out of uh, the SEAL program, I went to being a missile technician on submarines, and we addressed nuclear deterrence. If anybody had big guns to shoot at us, we wanted to make sure we could hit them back. And that makes sure. sure nobody with a big gun ever uses the big gun. Right. And I understood that mission, but the, the atmosphere is incredibly exclusive. Like you have to become part of that community. You have to really adapt to what they are. That, and it's a very high stress community too. Mm-hmm. Um, as, this is the missile tech? Uh, that specific kind of submarine in general, yes. Sure, okay. Because not only do you have your typical requirements that the Navy would impose upon you or any government agency would impose upon you, you also have the added aspect that you're dealing with nuclear weapons, so you have God and country watching you at all times. Yeah, yeah. And you know what the schedule's going to be. You're going to have the boat for a couple months. You're going to get it ready to go out to sea. You're going to go out to sea, do your job, and come back. But even in knowing that schedule and having a predictable schedule, it could be still very, very stressful. Uh, For example, when we had the boat and we had to get missiles ready to be loaded and such, uh, there was very often where we were in 12-hour shift work for until the job was complete. Like, it's Mm. not... Four on, three off, no modified schedule. You are on for 12s until the job is done. That could end, that could last 20, 25 days at a time. So you'd have an exhausting environment. You'd have people who are stressed because they're about to leave their families. Honestly, the easiest day for a sailor in that condition is the day that he goes out to sea. Uh, Right, because you're just cutting ties and you're you're committed. Right. And you don't have to deal with the stress of getting ready to go. You are there now. Mm-hmm. Um, but hmm. in that high stress environment, a lot of people do lose their way, uh, especially junior sailors. I saw so many junior sailors that just couldn't cut it, either had to get out of the program or eventually after their first enlistment just left. Um, the boat I was on, we had, uh, over the course of six years, we had three suicides and, uh, oh, wow. one of What's them the compliment on a boomer, the compliment or how many, how many men on about a 160. Oh, wow. So, wow, I mean, this tough. is, it's, it's a small environment, you know, everybody, even if you're not going to work with them and you're going to rarely see them, you know, them. And sure. Oh, yeah. Some yeah. are a lot, depending on where you worked on the boat. There, you have the people in the back, the middle, and the front. Mm-hmm. If you were one of the guys who worked in the middle, you knew every, and we were as missile techs. Our the missile compartment is in the middle of the boat, so sure, we kind of were all over the boat. Yeah. So you and, get to and know front everybody. Front and back are crossing through the middle too. So you, correct. You bump shoulders with. Pretty much everybody and birthing is in the middle uh, around where we okay. were working so there's no way you don't know everybody on such a small uh saw small duty assignment sure. and uh when you do see people you just never know some of them are very good at hiding the stress others actually like the stress i, I never understood that 
<laughs> and some of them, some of them don't do well with the stress. And that's probably the hardest part to deal with. Do you, you mentioned that just the whole thing about like soldiers or uh, sailors losing their way or whatever. Do you think that's intrinsic to the, the, um, not the command structure, just the environment? I, I like, think it, it was it unavoidable. I think it was. I think the bigger Navy and the submarine force started to understand that as I was leaving. I don't know sure. how much it's changed since I've been gone either. So that might have changed quite a bit. I have one supervisor who I worked with a lot. I did a lot of dumb stuff just because I was trying to find my way, especially on my first boat. And my supervisor really helped me maybe not become a long-term sailor, but navigate my way through that mess. And his transformation is also really cool to me, and it might be reflective of the bigger submarine force, because when I knew him as a very junior sailor, he was a very aggressive leader, very... um. I hate using the word toxic because everybody uses that word nowadays, but it's, it's the truth. Like he still didn't know himself and he was trying to be a leader and the way he was trying to be a leader was through brute force. And since then I've, I maintained a very good relationship with him, but he's become one of the most logical, uh, philosophical people. I think I know where those, Mm. those traits were in him as a leader before, but it took some kind of transformation to go from being a toxic leader to being one who could really hold a conversation and really work on those communication skills. Hmm. And I don't know that it's not just his own transformation or if maybe the whole submarine force has transformed since I left. It's just hard to know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But it was a very challenging environment and it was very, uh, I'd say it left some pretty long-term effects on me, certainly. For good or ill? Good Probably or for Ill? bad, honestly. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I wasn't a perfect sailor at that point. I hadn't found my path yet. I didn't know myself. But there were so many points where I was trying to find myself that I just... Um, I married pretty much immediately when I got into the military. And right. that's... Uh, that's a bag of worms for any lower level leadership because that's such a stereotype that a, a, sa- a sailor or Marine sure. doesn't matter what your junior member is, but the stereotype is you get back from your de- first deployment, you meet a stripper and you get married to him. And then the obvious end of that is it doesn't end well. Well, right, I didn't right. marry a stripper, but uh, I met my wife at, uh Right before my first deployment, we struck it off immediately. Uh, as soon as I came back from my first deployment, I married her. And we had known her, each other just about six months at our, at the point we oh, got wow. married. And immediately, we also started having kids. And that's not something any military leadership wants to see. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and looking back they're probably very well justified not to want to see those kinds of things happen uh to our defense we've made it 
over a decade now and uh, we've had quite a few kids and it that's a transformation that that's a transforming relationship also like you start one thing you realize you're not what the other person thought they were and you become something else that works together well and i've always mm, said sure like the american stereotype is that you need to have this loving relationship that that Disney happily ever after is how people really engage in relationships. I've, I'm more of a cynic and I say, you don't really need love in a relationship. You need two stubborn assholes that are more stubborn than the other person and just won't let it go. The, <laughs> the love will build over time. The, the stubbornness sure. has to be there at the start. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. But back to the, back to yeah. the, uh, how I was affected by the Navy. So we immediately started having kids. We had our, our son nine months later and not long afterwards, she was pregnant again. And at this point in my life, I wanted to have lots of kids that changed. And I, I definitely had different perspectives on kids after the fact, but in the end we still had a lot of kids, but at this point we still wanted to have lots of kids. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and our second pregnancy was a miscarriage. And Mm. as soon as I found out that it was a miscarriage, I left the boat like at like two o'clock on a work day. And it's like, I'm going home to be with my wife. And I got written up for that. So, um, that left a very bad, like the Navy has been for a long time, at least the whole time I was in trying to brag about how, how family friendly they were, but yet leadership Mm. wasn't always on board with that and that really did affect my perception of the navy for a very long time in fact when my fourth son started having his cancer symptoms like i was very hesitant to get my command involved just because of my experience with the navy Mm. and i don't know if it's an air force versus navy thing or a uh active duty versus reserve thing but my experience with the air force was significantly better like they absolutely banded together to support us through hmm. well for at least the whole time i stayed with the air force and really even since i've gotten out of the reserves um i have several people who will just randomly connect with me like hey how you doing is your is your son doing well and like the the two experiences were significantly different. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting the the dichotomy of goals there. You were talking about how your command, your your the structure of your marriage and your relationship, the command doesn't like to see that because there's a lot of risk and everything. Oh, especially you, at that at, at that stage when a junior yeah. member yeah. ups and gets married, there's a an enormous amount of risk. Yeah, but then when you leave work early to make an effort to maintain that relationship, the the mission at that point is more important mm-hmm. to them than, and there, than you maintaining your, your marriage. There is a uh, structural difference between the Air Force and the Navy that I've noticed, and mm-hmm. I wonder if it's the right direction to go, something that the Navy could take away from it. But when you are on the boat, you have you have your enlisted chain of command, and then you have your officer chain of command. And your enlisted chain of command goes all the way up to your chief of the boat 
And his job is to mitigate all the personnel issues. So if somebody does have a family issue come up, it's his job to Mm. get involved. Unfortunately, he's also affected by making sure production is happening. So they have both somebody who's in a production role also being your human resources role. Yep. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And it's a massive conflict of interest. Well, the Air Force took the idea from the Army, but they have a person called the First Shirt, which is essentially your senior enlisted guy again. But they have him, and then they also have the chief, because in in, in the Air Force chief is your E9, not where in the Navy your chief is E7 and above. Well, chief in the in the Air Force is your E9, and he is the production manager. But his job is not HR, because that's the first shirt's job, who is normally E7, E8. Okay, sure. So he's still, he's still junior to the chief, but his role is completely opposite to the chief. So when an HR issue does come up like that, he can fight tooth and nail to make sure that that member is taken care of and not care about production. Sure. Sure. And I really like that the Air Force has done that. I don't think the Army necessarily does it as well as the Air Force does because I haven't really experienced the Army. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if the Navy could really um, benefit by separating those two roles. I th- hmm. I'm inclined to think they could. Yeah, I know that just the conflict of interest on its face would seem to be um, I, a I problem. Hon- I honestly think a lot of that was at play when I was mm-hmm. in the Navy and it didn't help that self-discovery is so much like once you discover yourself and know what you are and who you're going to be, it changes everything. And I didn't really discover that until about six, seven years in the Navy. How you were, how long were you in the Navy? Was it eight and a what? half? Okay. Okay. I did a full sea duty and then a full shore duty. And sea okay. duties are about five years for your first. They can be five or six years for your first assignment. So, as a missile tech, were you a nuke, or was that that was nuke a is nuke. a different word? Okay. Um. So yes, we did look, work on nuclear weapons, but in the Navy, when you say someone is a nuke, you're speaking specifically to the fact that they work on nuclear power. Uh, okay. the- they're the ones who are controlling the engines that run the boat that give us power that give us electricity and uh, a lot of other things, including fresh water. Right. Like, they do a whole lot of cool things, but when you say nuke, you're not talking about the people who actually work on the weapons. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cause um, nuke, I believe is a six year commitment. It was, was yours, was your uh, enlistment six years? Or? Yes. But I oh, okay. got to leave the boat early just because I already got a shore duty and okay, I sure. over, I overlapped that commitment by it re-enlisting for shore duty, which was another. So it's technically four extended to six if you're in that role. But at four, I re-enlisted for four more and got rid of that requirement. I got you. Okay, sure. Sure. And at about five and a half years, I went to shore duty in Washington. Okay. So yeah, then... You said you you uh, enlisted in the Air Force. What what happened there? What, oh, uh, that one was wh- easy. Why the why the transition, and then and also what did you do in the Air Force? Well, when I came out of the Navy, they said, "Hey, you should you should consider reserves." Like uh, I'm definitely considering reserves. And what do you got to offer? Well, 
you were a submarine guy and we don't have any submarine roles in the reserve. So we'll have to retrain you to something else. And so mm. I asked him, well, can you offer me a bonus for going into a new role? And they said, well, there's nothing available right now. And at that point I said, well, let me talk to the other services. <laughs> and uh, I went, I went to Wright Pat Air Force Base because that was the local base for um, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the recruiter there. I was like, hey, what do you have as a bonus? And like, well, do you want to be a plumber? I was like, does it have a bonus? Like, yeah, it does. <laughs> and I, well, then I want to be a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> so I went from being a guy who was on a missile, works on missiles, and had an enormous amount of regulations to be in a job where nobody wants to tell you your job. Right. And in 2018, I went on a deployment to the middle East and out of all the deployments I had, it was definitely the most fun. Um, (laughs) I had active duty guys there. Just, we had half of our shop was a reservist. Half of our shop was active duty and the active duty guys were miserable. They hated being away they hated being in the Middle East. They hated having the nastiest job in the military. And yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking, come on, guys. There's not a single <laughs> officer out there who's going to tell you how to do your job. No one wants to tell us how to do our job. This is awesome. Right. <laughs> so like a, like a literal plumber, like you're hooking up sinks and okay, toilets so and stuff? Okay, it's, so it's the Air Force, so they have to call it something cool. Or we were water and fuel systems technicians. Oh, okay. Got gotcha. you. So because water uh, engineering and fuel engineering is pretty much the same thing. They teach you both sides. So if they need you to put in a fuel line or maintain a fuel line, all you need to understand is the control systems and the, the electronics half of how fuel moves from a tank to, uh, to a plane. But okay. It just depended on what assignment you got after that, whether or not you would ever touch fuel again. Most of us didn't, unless you were actually sent to a base that had... Because uh, uh, another uh, aspect of it is that most of the fuel movement jobs, mm-hmm. the the military contracts out to contractors. Oh, so okay. even though we have this knowledge, if your base was contracted to do it, you'd never touch it either. Gotcha. Okay. Huh. So yeah, I'm interested as a reservist. Um, are you a, like, are you attached to a specific unit when you go over? Yes. Is it a, is it a full reserve unit or is it a, um, are I you talking time unit or are you talking specifically towards the deployment or the, yeah, when you're deployed, when you're like deployed. When you... So it's weird. I I've heard that back in the day, when they needed to deploy you, they'd send the whole squadron to one location. But the needs of the military the, and our government in general have us doing a lot of littler missions all over the world. So instead of going as a full squadron to support one mission, you'd get broken up to support many missions. Okay, sure. And we had a pretty good portion of our squadron at the mission I was on. Uh, I'd say there's about 150 to 200 uh, airmen in our squadron at any given time. And a good 50 of us went to the deployment I was on, but there was also guys who went to places like uh, horn of Africa, Kuwait, 
nothing is nobody got anything cool like Europe. Yeah, I, right, you have to right. be lucky for that. <laughs> hmm. But I I thoroughly enjoyed my deployment. It's some of the best times I've had. Uh, I don't recommend it, but one thing I've noticed in my my exploring the world is it doesn't matter what culture you come from. There's a few things that will always connect you to people. And those are alcohol, cigarettes, and food. So if you can get good at any one of the above, then yeah. you'll be able to connect with people. Well, yep. we were in the Middle East, so alcohol was not a lot. Right, right. Um, they cooked our food for us. We didn't have any chance to make our own food or uh, mm. mingle with people. But what we had going was we had a very strong um, number of food service workers that were local to the nation. And when talking to one of the contractors on a different assignment I was on, I went to the, the national capital and was just talking to some organizations that could sell us supplies. And I was asking, hey, why is everybody smoking? And somebody said, well, it's our national sport. <laughs> so I uh, I started smoking. <laughs> Uh, and I, I mean, I've used tobacco on and off throughout the, my military experience, but it's definitely more of a social role. Mm -hmm. And sure. I found that people will be very human with you over a cigarette. It's, it's really cool. Uh, it mm. did, it did help that I took a semester of Arabic while I was over there just okay, for sure. a little bit more immersion. And I, I think, I think the military and the military members lose sight of the fact that we are humans in a human world sometimes. So just the just the fact that I was trying to communicate with them in their own language, they really loved it. Like, sure. They were incredibly friendly. They, they would help me write their alphabet. And I don't know how much you know about Arabic, but it is an incredibly complex cursive alphabet. Okay. And so it's a very like challenging... Like a level of... Like a Chinese... Like everything's got to be just so kind of thing. It's very, yeah, it's, it's okay. very specific. The sounds have to be very specific. They have sounds you would never hear in, in mm. uh, English. There's like a, a GH sound. And instead of it sounding like good, it's like <sighs> almost. Oh. And then like right. some sounds like it's, you almost have to connect, control your throat as though you were coughing the sound out. So huh, there's there's a lot of idiosyncrasies, not to mention that one of the uh, the guys there, he was saying that uh, English has about 2,000 words in it, the whole language. Arabic has 12,000. So that, oh, wow. that okay. adds to the challenge. But sure. between just connecting with people, talking to them, smoking with them, I had a fantastic time. Like. So many great people out there. A lot of them were really good cooks. A lot of them, like, we're taught so much growing up in America. So many stereotypes. Until you actually talk to them, it it doesn't really count. Because you have mm -hmm. no idea if what you learned growing up was true or bullshit. Right. And I found right. that a lot that what I grew up with was probably not accurate. Well, yeah, like you were saying about when you joined, when you uh, went into boot camp, you had all these perceptions. Mm -hmm. 
and realize that it's not like that at all. That's kind of... Well, if you're familiar with the conservative right in America, we, or I say we as, that's what I came out of. Right, right. It, it, it glamorizes the military and really makes you think that this is a big patriotic calling and that you're serving God and country. And when you actually get there and see it from the other side, it doesn't always feel that way. And for some, it does. I would never discount that they are doing it for patriotism and for pride and for the calling of whatever God they choose. But for a lot of us, that that story kind of got shallow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I will say um, experienced cigarettes in the Middle East. Uh, craziest, like crazy innovation but you know how in america some of us have gotten these cigarettes that have a little bead of menthol in them so if you pop them it goes from a regular cigarette to being a menthol cigarette oh okay okay over there they had a lemon flavor with that bead that was the (laughs) craziest coolest thing i've ever like okay yes smoking is bad but this is cool okay (laughs) so you can choose to pop it or not yeah and it would be just a regular cigarette until you popped in the lemon flavor i've never (laughs) i've never seen anybody have lemon flavors in the states or anywhere else in the world interesting and have you looked for it locally uh not really i honestly don't smoke at home especially having kids like i sure i'll take that back uh i go to vfw meetings now and at the monthly meeting i will go out of my way to find a decent cigar and smoke it during the meeting. Sure. But other than that, unless I'm going to have a social experience, I really don't use tobacco. And yeah. I mean, I think that's the right message to send my kids. Yeah. Well, and like you're saying, it's the, it's kind of like the camaraderie aspect of mm-hmm. it or the, um, <clears throat> yeah, that makes sense. And then when I'm not doing that, like I do, like I said, alcohol and food are the other two huge connectors for humans so whenever i have the opportunity i really do like to to have people over and just cook that's that's definitely one of my outlets i love doing Mm it huh yeah and who doesn't like eating right (laughs) like you could so instead of having everybody in congress sitting around yelling at each other you put them (laughs) down with a good set of food let them talk it would it would solve all of america's problems Yeah. Like let's <laughs> let's stop investing in the military. Let's take that massive military budget that we've got that's bigger than any other nation's military budget and just buy some food and have us talk out our problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh so real side question here, you just made me think of this. Um it's not uncommon for somebody to hear, "Hey, you were in the military. Um you're an expert on all things <laughs> military. What's your thoughts on that?" Uh, I think that can be taken out of context very easily. And a lot of military members feel like they're, they have earned some right to have a political opinion, even though they haven't really researched a political opinion. So when somebody Mm. says, I, I, I see that as a very negative thing. I don't think the military is as, uh, most of the people I experienced, especially being deployed, were jo- guys who just wanted to go there, do their jobs, and come home. That does mm-hmm. not make you an expert in anything. You experience right. something that many Americans can't say they experienced, but that doesn't make anyone an expert. I think that's yeah. a dangerous uh, 
position. I got in a Facebook argument where people were really calling for, hey, we need heightened. Uh, I think it was about the time we got out of Afghanistan where people were saying, well, we mm, should okay. just you, we should have just bombed the whole place and gotten over it, make the whole place into a glass sandbox. And like one, that's a in, incredibly dangerous opinion to have, much less spread. Right. Two, the guy also is like, well, I'm a former submariner, I'm a veteran, and I have a degree in engineering. And it's like, right. wow, cool. you, uh, the first thing you're going to do is play your veteran card without even knowing that there, there's a sm- slight possibility that I might also be able to play that card. And right. I, sure, I'm not an engineer, but I I have a degree in business and I'm about to have my master's and I've done incredible amount of studying on geopolitical conflict. So... I'm I'm I, I'm glad I'm glad you can say that you were a veteran, but uh, dude, keep it to yourself. Right, right. <laughs> like I'm not even gonna play that card unless somebody plays it to me first. And honestly, it does not contribute to the conversation. It does not progress hmm. a narrative. It doesn't build something we can talk to each other about. It it's a power play most of the time to say I'm sure. superior. My thought is superior. Your to your thought because i was a veteran and that's just empty so Hmm. i appreciate you bringing that up because i i find that to be a very negative thing well it's it's obviously something you have no opinion or emotion on so (laughs) (laughs) i i have uh not positive emotions on it yeah 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 so i'm curious you so you experienced navy on shore navy deployed air force reserve and then Air Force Reserve deployed. What was, that's like four really vastly different aspects. What was your, the 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 relationship with command, whether it be enlisted or, or officers, what was the difference, some of the differences between those four different uh, setups? Um, it comes down to mission, I think, because mm-hmm. in the military, mission is always the first, always comes first. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Navy, we had our strategic deterrent mission and that cannot fail ever. If, if your involvement in the mission fails, there's only a handful of other submarines that can take it. So you not being able to do your job is intention. Well, not intentionally, but definitely screwing over someone else. So there is an aspect of. Um, build up again stress needing to be on mission and that's always going to be the first thing that is taken into account for all decisions is the mission happening mm-hmm. in shore duty you're a support mission so the chance of you being really critical to any operation is much less drastic. You're never going to be critical to the operation. And because of that, your quality of life is much better. Your stress is much lower. Sure. And your mission is significantly easier. If you don't get your job done, they don't get to go out to sea for a little bit longer. And and that's mm. only in very unique scenarios. It would like, especially the shop I was in, 
us not getting our job done would have never stopped them from going to sea. Uh, and, well, if it, and also there's someone there to pick up the slack. More right. Likely. And if, if it ever did get to that point where our job was affecting their ability to complete their mission, a lot of people would have put boots to asses to make sure that we got our job done. But right. being in a support role, it's rarely ever um, stressful or missions critical. So you have a lot of time to work on schoolwork. Uh, you have a lot of time to pick up alternative duties. I, my last year and a half of being in the Navy from the shore command, I was a fitness instructor and that was a really cool side because the Navy needs people to stay in shape. And when people start not being able to maintain that fitness level, you get involved. And that wasn't too, that, that was a good job. It could Were you get involved in like a remedial level or just uh, like if someone fell below the standard, you took care of the fat bodies or did, were you with working with everybody? Uh, we we were our job was to work with everybody, administer fitness tests on a semi annual basis. Okay. But people who couldn't pass any component of that fitness test. Yes, we had to to work with them between nutrition, fitness uh, provide them workouts at least three times a week. And that meant we'd run a workout three times a day at our, right at our level. And so my, I mean, I've never been as fit in my life, so that was kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I'm definitely so what about not the- that level of fitness now. Right. <laughs> so what about the, uh, the air force reserve experience? What was the command relationship like there? Uh, it's much, uh, and this might be a reservist thing, but mm-hmm. it's certainly sure. less strict and less stringent than the Navy's hierarchy of ranks. Like, uh, in the Navy, you could only go to lunch or eat with somebody who is relatively close rank to you. And generally in active duty, that's the truth. But in the reserves... Sure. Even as an E5, which is very middle, I I could eat with officers or E7s, E8s, and have hmm. rather friendly relationships with them because the possibility of fraternization or uh, unethical relations oh, was significantly sure. lower. It's just we see each other once a month. We become more of a friendly relationship than a working relationship. Uh Sure. And then as and you in, do... in your in your civilian life, you you might even um, in the eyes of if it was if there was a rank to civilian life, you might. Um, yeah, the rank by somebody. The rank goes away life, in civilian life. Yeah. And so you might own a business because honestly, be E5. Right. And then you're talking to an O2, you know, that sells used cars or something. Because as an as a civil as a as a military member, I'm an E5. But. In the military, I mean, as a civilian, I'm a a government worker, and my rank is that of a captain or higher in the government Mm. side. So when it comes down to it, sure, I might be E5 for this job, but I'm that doesn't define me like it would have in active duty in in the reserves. (laughs) Sure, you outpower me, but when I go home, I'm making a whole lot more money than I'm here, so... It's right. much less likely to make me, it's much less likely to hurt my feelings when you tell me I'm doing my job wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. This, this is your weekend, man. I'm, I'm yes. going back to real life. 
And in so, the Air Force Reserves, weekends are a lot of paperwork, catching up with red tape and training. Uh, mm. It's definitely not the military experience you would get from another reserve component. Huh. Okay. So the whole fraternization or the the ability to have friendships or eat lunch with different ranks, you think that was more of a reserve function than the fact that it was you transferred to Na- from Navy to Air Force? I think it's more of a reserve thing because okay. uh, I think Air Force active duty, they probably are a lot more structured on who sure. can do what, but I don't experience that, so I can't really give you a fair answer. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, yeah, SEAL, you mentioned you were in the SEAL program. That's super high speed and cool, and everybody thinks that's fantastic. How how far did you get in that? Well, like I said, I didn't even get out of boot camp, because after boot camp, oh, you okay. would go to San Diego to do the initial beatdown session, uh-huh. which has, I think, a 70% fail rate. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I... Boot camp was a huge culture shock to me. Like, I didn't even get to that point where I could have failed out of the seals. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, okay, I I misunderstood you then. I <clears throat> yeah, so I came just... in with the intent of doing it, but during boot camp, it kind of went, got you. All the <laughs> all the pressure went straight to my head, and instead of uh, adapting to the pressure, I just kind of sure collapsed in the pressure. Picked a different job, which was probably, like, honestly, looking back, it was probably better for me that I didn't go see all the, that. From what I've seen, it's a very stressful lifestyle. And mm. I mean, it does have a lot of clout to it. I don't know if it's worth all that clout. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It could come at a high cost potentially. Mm. Hmm. I've, I've really, as I look back, I've, kind of found that the the benefits are really what are the important things of the military like being mm. able to come out of the military after doing an assignment and getting an, a, a really decent education and i i know a lot of uh, activists will tell you that the military is just an enabler to pull people out of poverty and while that's unfair to poor people that they need to go to the military to escape poverty, mm-hmm. it definitely helped me. I, I don't know if I would have called what I was in poverty, but sure, coming from the background I was, it was not. <laughs> it was it was lower middle class, if that. Um, sure. And but it, it gave access you the... to an education and access to. Uh, yeah, mostly the education. That's the biggest vener- veterans benefit I've used. Mm-hmm. And I'm very thankful for that. Hmm. What uh, what was your uh, experience with the recruiter um, when, you, when you signed up? And as far as your maybe your expectations, aside from your self-generated expectations about being a SEAL, um, your, the comparison between what you expected or what was promised you and well, then what you got. I didn't really have that experience where people have an issue with what the recruiter told them. Mm-hmm. I came in knowing that I wanted to be a SEAL. Uh, I was very proud of my progress up to that point. And when I scored pr- so well on the ASVAB, 
like the recruiter did the right thing and was like, Hey, you should probably try something else. Like you have, you have options. Mm. You don't need to go into the seal program. I, I wasn't at a stage in my life where I could have listened to that. I was, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it took a lot of just like the school of hard knocks to realize that I, I needed a different path, I guess. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, no, actually that leads into right into the next question of, uh, kids not listening to what they're told. Um, in spite of that fact, um, what would you, if a kid asked you, you know, I'm going to the military, what's your advice? Uh, what would you say? Um, I would say take whatever opportunity you have to be ready for that entrance exam. Cause even though a test can't really tell you what your value is, so much is dependent on that test. Um, mm. pick a job that has excellent transferability and skills, uh, get a tech job, get something similar that will springboard you to your next, what, figure out what you want out of life before you join the military. And I, I know that's mm -hmm. not possible for an 18, 18 year old <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> coming fresh out of high school, but have an idea what you want out of life before you join the military. Cause the military will significantly alter what you thought you wanted and the path you needed to take to get to it. And hmm. that, that would be my first bit of advice. Qualify for a good job and pick a good job. And then the second bit of advice is remember that this is a temporary assignment. If this is your springboard to go get your veteran benefits and get yourself a good education and move to the next step, don't feel trapped and thinking that you need to stay there for whatever reason. This is this is temporary. Don't don't squander your life on something you think is permanent that isn't. Hmm. And again, <laughs> it's easy to say that. Is it easy for an eighteen-year-old to understand what you're saying? <laughs> right. I we're, we're I in a wonder. Culture. We're in a culture where people will go through a four-year college program and never use it. So, right, <laughs> that's, that's a level of forethought that older people are giving to their life plans. Well, I think also <laughs> some industries and businesses are starting to realize that people are more than a skill set. And when you're hmm. hiring a person, you need somebody who's compatible to a team. You can teach a skill set. You can't teach a person to be a human, though. And a lot more companies sure. are starting to realize hmm. that starting to treat people like humans instead of just a set of qualifications. And that's the right direction to go. It'll be interesting to see if the military ever decides to take that direction. Mm hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, um, your experience with healthcare. Did you, did you utilize healthcare in the Navy or just in the air force? Um, I definitely utilized healthcare in the Navy, maybe, maybe not to the extreme that I probably could have, mm -hmm. uh, but certainly I did utilize it um, for the active duty. Again, they care that your body is good enough to continue being useful for a deployment or a mission. So the basics, they make sure you're taking care of vision, um, dental, 
they want to make sure that that's not going to become an issue at a bad time. So most of that is mandatory. Um, okay. Some of the things like incidental pain and pain management, they're definitely not as good at, especially considering mission is the pri- priority and not the individual's sure. health. Sure. Um, I, I had several injuries while I was in the Navy, just unexplained injuries. And rather than actually get decent coverage or get MRIs or CAT scans, they just <laughs> kept giving me drugs. At one point, like I was running on a field and my entire back below my shoulder just kind of locked up. Like I could crawl, oh, wow. but it was uh, painfully spasmatic. And (laughs) I went to the Navy ER up in Washington state and was like, Hey, my back is all kinds of painful right now. It's completely locked up and having spasming pain. (laughs) And they just get like, their process was, does it work now? Like, right. Here's Tylenol. Does it, does it feel better now? (laughs) Like I, I, I'm sarcastic, but like I, I say, that they went all the way up to moose tranquilizer before it got results. Oh, wow. <laughs> like they just kept escalating. Like, here's this drug. Does this work? Like, I, I don't know how I feel about this, but Hey man, this moose tranquilizer feels good. <laughs> um, I, wow. I've had that pain recurring since then. So one of these days I'm going <laughs> to claim it for the VA. I have, I've only recently started to do the VA claims process just because I didn't like, I was still in a transitory phase where I was finishing my education and a lot of Mm -hmm. me wanted to commission and finish out either active duty or reserve time. And, uh, at the end of my contract with the reserves, everything was getting rough with my son's medical situations. Like I, I think I'm done. But then after that point, I still have, all this conflict where I still kind of want to retire. Like, well, maybe if it settles down, I'll commission and come back. And it took a while to break that, that conflict and just realize, Nope, I like my beard too much. I'm not, I'm not going back. (laughs) Right. right. Um, but like in the air force, um, I had several incidents with, with my legs and my knees and those are becoming much more painful as I go on. I I think a lot of it can be attributed to us having a new uniform and a new set of boots uh, for a deployment in the Middle East where we're on sandy material wearing combat boots that really messed with my ankles and knees. And I'm certainly hoping that the VA will appreciate that my knees hurt on mm-hmm. a daily basis. I I can't tell you how I feel about medical coverage yet, but who knows, maybe next year I can talk about it. Yeah. So was there um, a difference between the services for what, what the, to what extent you have utilized them? Um, or was it pretty similar? Very pretty similar. Very the one major difference um, between Navy and, and Air Force that I've noticed is when I was stationed in Georgia on the Florida Georgia line, we didn't have access to a 
military hospital, except way farther south hmm. in Jacksonville, Florida. So if you needed anything done for bigger than just what a clinic could do, you had to take an, an hour and a half trip to go get it. Mm. Uh, however, okay. l like I mentioned before, my third child was born right as I was getting out of the Navy. And because I lived very close to the Air Force Base with their massive hospital, we were actually able to have her and the next kid in the Air Force Hospital, which oh, okay. was not sure. something I experienced with the Navy. Uh, it was really cool have, being able to have my kid in a military hospital and finding that that level of care was very high. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Having a having a full dedicated hospital on base is a huge difference. It's a game changer. So I'd say, yeah, because of that, my experience with the Air Force, maybe not for personal health, but family health was much better. Sure, sure. Huh. What was, um, what was your most memorable moment in in either service or in oh, both goodness. services? That's a dangerous uh, statement. <laughs> I mean, it, it could be it could be an un, unenjoyable moment, but just uh, when you think back, what is the what moment just sticks most in your craw? That doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what moment just you really you know you remember the best? Um, there's a couple. One I would love to tell you, but I'm pretty sure it's classified, so I'd <laughs> okay. have to I'd have to connect with you offline for that one. Um, uh. There's another one that I could tell you, but it's definitely more R-rated than most stories, <laughs> and so I'm going to leave that one behind, too. Um, having my uh, supervisor write me up over having leaving for a miscarriage, that was definitely a, a very mm. negative experience that definitely steps out. Hmm. I'd say... Um, my most favorable experience was probably during the Air Force deployment where we were deployed in support of, oh man, what was that mission? You remember in the end of 2018 where ISIS was all trapped up in Syria? Hey, hey. It's my show. I ask the questions. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, just asking. Uh, if no, you, no, I'm I'm just giving you a time. Um, like it was uh, fairly big news, but I don't think it really, really hit American because like ISIS was a big deal. But then at some point we had them all trapped in Syria, and we were just bombing okay. them around the clock to uh, eradicate them. Sure. So sure. I was fairly close to that, and we were just constantly sending up planes. And okay. It broke ISIS's back. But we were sending them from a very low profile country. And I can't say it. Oh, sure. Because yeah, of, yeah, I hear you. I can't say what country, but I can say things of, that I experienced in that country as a tourist. So right, I got right. to, uh, as a tourist, I got to go to the capital city and visit some of their malls. Very expensive, but very cool. Um, mm -hmm. I got to go to uh, the traditional site of uh, Jesus, uh, the story of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. Mm. Uh, they oh, have okay. 
they have two sides to the river at that location. One side is incredibly touristy, and then the other side is a much more authentic experience, and that's what I got to experience. Sure, um, sure. I got to go to the the mountain where the prophet Moses was supposed to have died, and there's a cathedral, mm. not a cathedral, but a, a chapel up there with a lot of mosaic. The country I was in had tons of mosaics, huh? and they're... People were incredibly friendly. I think that's probably just experiencing that culture and getting to see it. That's probably my favorite military experience. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that, that'd be, it'd be interesting to be, like you're saying, you're kind of like a tourist, mm-hmm. but you're not. You're also there. For a mission. Doing your different, for a mission, yeah. Well, huh. I joined the Navy with part of this uh, perception that you join the Navy, you so- see the world. And that right, kind of yeah. got broke And then on you me. got on a boomer. <laughs> yes. Uh, that one kind of wrecked my perception of the military. Well, one of the things that wrecked my perception of the military, and I, mm-hmm. I saw a whole lot of steel, <laughs> not, right. not yeah. the world. Uh, <laughs> before I joined the military, my brother was stationed in Japan. And as a teenager, I got to visit him like four times. So that's the experience I was looking for. Right. Not the experience I got. So being able to do that in the Air Force, even getting to see one country was definitely Mm -hmm. what something I wanted from the military. Sure. Yeah. That's just, yeah, you you saw more of the world through your brother's service than Mm -hmm. than through your own Navy service. And then when we flew back, when I flew back from that deployment, I stopped. On the way over, we had a, a layover in Shannon, Ireland. Oh, okay. And and that was the most disappointing layover over. That that was the most, the saddest layover ever because we got to go to Ireland, which is on everybody's top list, and our layover was forty five minutes. Oh, we got to get <laughs> off the plane, grab a beer, and get on the plane. Right. Right. <laughs> That Did was, you get to leave the terminal or no, was that, that all? It, it oh, was, wow. It was the terminal bar. Right. <laughs> and everybody Perfect. wanted to get a, a Guinness. It's like, why would you want a Guinness? You can get a Guinness in the States. So I got right. a Smithic, which you definitely can get in the States too. But, you know, I had to be contrarian. It, yeah, it's not on tap or at most bars. Uh, on the way back, I got the land in Turkey. Didn't get the leave. Mm. Uh, I stayed in Kuwait for several days waiting for a military flight back from Kuwait. So I got mm, to experience okay. Kuwait a little. I got to experience what Turkey looks like. Um, I had a, a short several-hour layover in Ramstein, Germany. And I got to get a boot of beer, which was pretty cool. Like, it was an enormous boot. <laughs> it felt good. And then I came back to... Um, the dc area (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and that was it but i i I did more traveling with the air force than i'd ever experienced with the navy so at least i got that kind of checked off yeah yeah which yeah seems to be the opposite of what you'd expect you'd expect the navy you know join the navy see the world and then and then you got to see more with the air force Mm -hmm. huh yeah, like if you have the opportunity, that's another thing I would recommend um, for a young person. If you have the opportunity, uh, opportunity, and you score well enough on the test, 
pick your service because you'll have a significantly better experience in some services than others. Sure, sure. Or, yeah, that's one thing I've heard a lot is um, look at your options first. Certainly. Before you commit to something. I mean, don't just, if you talk to one recruiter, what they propose to you might be different from what another service, even, even you know, a lot of people say the Air Force is, what you should join, but you might like something the Navy or the Army offers you. Better this is than true. Force even, and they have all the militaries have very similar schools. They have access to similar schools. Uh, for example, if you want to be a linguist, you're going to go to California. All of them go to the same place for school. Mm. Um, and for example, when I went to the plumber school for the Air Force, it was a it was a joint school between the Army and the Air Force and some some sailors too so you're going to have similar opportunities but Mm -hmm. get a good idea what your experience is going to be because there's a hierarchy of happiness i call it um for -hmm. the services and it has the air force at the top navy army and then marines and all that the only thing that really changes is what you choose to hate Right. <laughs> Air Force doesn't hate anything. Air Force is loving all the time. Navy, right. I'm not sure totally what they hate, but they definitely hate. Army, <laughs> they hate their troops. Like the senior right. leadership hates their juniors and they treat them like crap. From what I've seen, that might, I mean, that's sure, just a sure. perception. And then the Marines, they just hate everything. And they're very good at it. <laughs> And they're great when they're not working, too, because they can be very fun. But on the job, they are paid to hate everything. And they're, right. they're pretty good at it. <laughs> uh, what was uh, how did your time in the service, both services, uh, what was the biggest thing that affected you after you got out? Definitely access to an education. Yeah. Uh, As soon as I got out, I went part-time work, part-time school, realized that wasn't a good fit to get my objectives done and switched over to full-time school and was doing the reserves on the side to keep up Mm. the benefits I needed, like insurance for my family, and uh, got my four-year degree done. Let's see. Yeah, I I joined the Air Force in 2016, 2015, and I graduated. Uh, it was a long process. Either way, uh, I was yeah. able to get my four-year degree pretty much last summer. Okay. And nice. with that degree, I was able to get a government job and federal jobs depending on what you get into, have incredibly good benefits for veterans. There's a different mm. different hiring path, uh, access to a different hiring process. It makes your life a whole lot easier and confident that you're going to have a job when you finish that degree. Right. I, right. I was able to get an internship between my junior and senior year on base at Wright Pat. And then the following summer, I was hired on by Department of Energy. And while I wanted to get a job on base at Wright Pat, 
I'm certainly glad I were, I got the one with Department of Energy because mm. I don't know if no I do know when you're on base and you're fighting for a civilian job as a veteran, your veteran status doesn't stand out. Everyone is a veteran that's trying oh, to hire sure. on base. Mm-hmm. So going an hour south to Cincinnati and picking up a job with Department of Energy, I had no competition for a job that would have, I, I rolled into a rank that I would not have been, I would have had to fight for right. with the military, with the, as an Air Force civilian. I, I just fell into that job and it's it's a progression type job where every year if I get hit my quota, I get promoted. And right. that is incredibly hard to argue with, like especially with COVID and uh, the shift to telework. It's been frustrating. It's hard to learn a job under mm-hmm. those circumstances, not having OJT, not having to do everything from behind a monitor. But even with that frustration and looking at other job possibilities out there, there is nothing that would be able to beat my pay this early into a career. Sure. Even in the civilian world and the, and the, in the public sector, or should I say the private sector, like the closest Mm -hmm. I could get is if like Amazon hired me on as an operations manager and I'd be making what I make next year (laughs) without having to really, really have right. to fight it uh, and the quality of life getting a job with the government is an incredibly powerful tool for a veteran all right and we're back after a little technical difficulty but what's new um yeah so mark you were talking about um switching services from navy to air force and you mentioned that there's difficulties there what's what exactly is the the deal there well, transitioning isn't difficult. If you have a good record and you have a good DD-214, uh, they'll probably take you, especially with the level of um, manning currently in the military. It seems like they're going through an attrition right now where the patriotism of the Iraq War and Afghanistan has uh, deteriorated to the point where people just wanted to get out of the forever war, and it's no longer this big patriotic mm. event to, to join the military. Yeah. Uh, so transitioning is very easy. Um, most services want you just to fill spots because they're hurting. The downsides is the process, at least my process, was not streamlined at all. Uh, and not the recruiting part, not the switching, the restoring your education, restoring what you did as a sailor that shows what you should be as a airman. Uh, Case in point, Mm. I had to go all the way through tech school to become a plumber, which was a six-month school. And before I could do anything to qualify further into my job and meet rank requirements for the next rank, I had to do that and fully qualify as a junior level and then as a journeyman plumber. And you're talking about a process that can take two to three years to happen. So I've I've suspended my ability to advance for two to three years just because I got a new job. Oh, sure. And sure. part of it is the professional military education requirements. They expect you at certain ranks to have taken whatever school. 
Well, one of the problems with the Air Force from Navy is they don't accept the Navy school for going from E4 to E5. So if you want to get to E6, you have to redo the E4 to E5 training. And that's another school you'd have to do with the Air Force. There's a lot of checks within the system where, hey, this would make a whole lot more sense to write a waiver for this guy because he's clearly had some kind of technical experience in and around these systems. He's clearly worked with hydraulic systems before, and he has paper records to show that he has experience. And even though it's not a toilet, it sure. works under the same right, <laughs> uh, same science, same technology. Um, I wasted a whole lot of time waiting to make requi- meet requirements. And then also... Especially for my squadron, the communication between key people like the training manager and the supervisors and the people who needed to be qualified to get to rank requirements, the communication wasn't flowing well mm. in any mm-hmm. any civilian organization, that kind of action the eventually the guy would have been fired and been replaced, and the right. situation would have been fixed. but with a reservist component where you have a guy there once a month and doing his job once a month and not really communicating us in the meantime, uh, he just got to sit on the position and I'm sitting five, six years in the, in the air force and I still haven't ranked up. So I'm like one of the oldest E five sitting in either the reserves or the air force. And I know there's other guys, there were, there were several uh, sailors, several soldiers that had come over to the Air Force, to mm-hmm. my squadron, and a lot of them experienced the same kind of bullcrap over that where, hey, this would make sure. sense to waiver. He knows what he's doing, but in but the procedure. Air Force, yeah, procedure, <laughs> the procedure does not exist for him to have a waiver. Therefore, we can't mm. think outside of the box. And if you want to think outside of the box, which the military does strongly encourage, you probably won't uh, get out of it what you thought you were going to get out of it. The the military likes to say that they want leaders to think outside of the box, but in practice, it doesn't happen that way very often. Uh, There are challenges to switching services. If I had stayed Navy Reserves, I would have promoted much quicker i probably would have left in the same time period that i didn't get promoted to e6 i probably would have been an e7 in the air force in the navy reserves at that point and you know what um part of me like that that separation anxiety that i talked about earlier that i'm not ready to be done with the military part of that is my pride saying hey i've been here too long to accept this ending Mm-hmm. And so overcoming that and saying no i'm worth way more outside than i am and that's that that can be challenging and a lot of it has to do with not being able to meet those career desires that i had wanted mm, sure sure but that is certainly mm. uh a unique scenario to cross service transfer i don't know uh it could have its benefits I don't know if I would recommend it, but for quality of life changes and the experience I had on my one deployment with the Air Force, I would say right. I'm happy. I'm happy with how it turned out. <laughs> I I honestly didn't need to bank on getting a next rank up. 
before I got out of the reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing well enough on the side to not have to care about that. Somewhat unrelated, but uh, I heard a fella say that there's a maximum of maximum of bureaucracy that um, proximity to command equals attention from command. Was that? Would you agree with that? Yes. Both both for good and ill. You. I'd if you say do well, I, you're more likely. I'd say, f- from my <laughs> perspective, it's definitely more ill than good. Um, oh, sure, sure. Uh, I saw a lot of people who were doing this just doing their jobs and get a lot of credit for just doing their jobs, get awarded for just doing their jobs. And that was across both services. In in the Navy, the guys who would get awards for just doing their jobs are the guys who are in administrative roles, That the guys that write the awards, the guys that have very close access to the senior leadership on the in the command right like they're in the ear of the captain every day just passing him the plan of the day uh making sure his his coffee is getting to him making sure that um they're connecting to the right people so just because they have that face time they're just doing their job but they're also getting awards for it in the air force it was your uh it was your firefighters and your explosive ordnance guys like firefighters have a very critical job i wouldn't knock them for it but they go put out a fire they get awards from the air force for putting out a fire it's like so i'm plunging a toilet do i get an award like (laughs) right like pilots gotta poop too like that's the whole reason you got us here you got to make sure that the flow from the water from the pooper gets to the waste and that the water coming to the pooper gets there. Because if not, right. that pilot's going to have a pretty crappy flight. <laughs> if it's the CO's toilet, then maybe maybe you'll get an nah, award. They, they ignore you, which is great. <laughs> like I've already expressed the reasons why it's great to be a plumber in the Air Force. But on the other hand, it is frustrating to see people do their job. And oh my goodness. You get a person like an EOD whose job is to disarm explosives or to mitigate Mm. disaster. Mm -hmm. They never do their job. They do their job once. They're automatically getting a medal for it. Right. That's kind of frustrating for the rest of us. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. Um, Uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think that you you do you slog away every day. I think the best analogy I ever got. and it really worked well for uh, for the military. Uh, it was one of my buddies while I was deployed, and he was telling me the story about four types of leaders. And he told me he got it from a story Colin Powell said. And I, I dug into it. It goes all the way back to World War One, like, like oh, okay, <laughs> all the way back to Patton or earlier. But there's there's four types of leaders in the military. There's four attributes, and and uh, any given leader is a combination of two. You got smart and you got stupid. You've got diligent and you got lazy. Mm, now, the person you want at the top of the command is uh, smart and lazy because he will right. he will come up with the right answer, but he won't put himself under a ton of pressure to get there. And he will probably come up with the right answer because he's not under pressure to get to the 
issue. Mm-hmm. So that that right. one's great. The second one in the second commando, in order to get anything done ever, he needs to be smart and diligent. Right. Uh, he needs right. to keep that guy in charge to task and like, hey, we need this done, this done, this done. He always he has to kind of be a bulldog to get anything done. The third type of officer is uh, lazy and stupid. And that's a very valuable tool. All you have to do is connect them with a process, make sure they never have to get out of that process, put them in logistics or something where they're doing repetitive stuff every day. And lazy and stupid, they'll come up with a creative way to come up with getting stuff done. And as, as long as there's a rule or a process involved, they won't ever get out of that lane. The last type of person that's diligent and stupid they're a threat to national security. Get rid of them. <laughs> so my buddy's telling me this analogy. Like and I was like, wow, that's really deep. That's way, way deeper than you actually think. I'm like, I wonder where that puts me. It's like, oh, no, that's easy. I know exactly where you are. You're smart and lazy. I'm like, well, at least we all know it. I didn't have to say it. <laughs> right. Uh, so I've, I've changed that. And my 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 leadership style, my uh, my work style is creatively lazy. I make sure everything's right. on a de- on a deadline, and as soon as I need to get that de- deadline accomplished, I knock it out. But if there's time to not be stressed about something, I will take that route. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like that's probably my favorite military analogy. Awesome. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the time and coming on. Uh, do you have any last thoughts or kind of final wrap up? Nope. Just uh, whatever you do, uh, have a purpose in it, um, and also um, realize that your perspective isn't the only one. Try to find somebody else's perspective when you're experiencing something, and it will make your experience much better for it. Mm. I think a lot of people in the military could really use getting out of their own vision and seeing it from another lens. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, well, and that's, that also applies to life. Now, that's yes. More than just military for sure. I mean, that's, that's a good lesson for me too. I, I try to do that. I feel like I try to do that, but um, I'm sure I often miss the mark. Well, <laughs> Life is an iterative so, process. If you're not failing constantly, you're not doing life. Like you, yeah, you fail yeah. so that you can do it better next time. Yeah, a buddy of mine says, um, for snowboarding, he says if you if you're not falling down, you're not learning. Exactly, and that's that's partly why. As I long as you uh, learn from well. the falling down and don't <laughs> right. just keep falling down, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly. that's pretty important. Thank you for listening to this episode of How I Embraced the Suck. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And as my Girl Scout den mother used to say, stay frosty. I'm trying to uh, fix food insecurity by creating miniature farms that you could take anywhere in the world.